This week on the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. I think there is a tendency now because our youth face so many terribly horrible things to kind of shy away from what could be perceived as a scary conversation, right? Because we have so many things in our world that like can traumatize kids, like active shooters or wildfires, hurricanes, whatever it is, there is this desire to protect kids from that because they're exposed to so many other threats in their daily lives. Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, and Emergency Management Podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle, and I will be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment, and what can we learn from this experience? From AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications, there's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges, and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emergency Management Society. Hi, everybody. Kyle here from Capacity Building International. And if you didn't know it, it is National Preparedness Month, which is an observance each September to raise awareness about the importance of preparing for disasters and emergencies that could happen at any time. And this year's National Public Service announcements are being developed and will be released throughout this country this September to help get preparedness information to the hands of those who live in underserved communities. And actually, the 2022 theme is a lasting legacy. And today we have with us Sam Johnson. Now, Sam Johnson is from the American Red Cross and has an excellent bio. And so I thought it would be great to have her on the, the podcast today. <laughs> and Sam Johnson is a program lead for the Youth Preparedness for National Headquarters at the American Red Cross. She manages two emergency and disaster preparedness education programs, Prepare with Pedro for kindergartners and the Pillowcase Project for third to fifth grades that have reached over 1.4 million students across the continental U.S. and on military bases abroad. She began her career as an AmeriCorps member with the American Red Cross of Alaska and supported long-term recovery efforts in the U.S. Virgin Islands after Hurricane Irma and Maria. She has a Master's of Science from Tulane University in Disaster Resilience Leadership, and you can learn more about her programs over at redcross.org slash youth prep. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So because September is Preparedness Month and you are working <laughs> in preparedness, of course, youth preparedness. I thought it'd be great to have you on the, the podcast and talk about some of the current <laughs> efforts that you have going on at the Red Cross and, and some of the challenges that we're facing in the future. So I think a great place to start is really to let us know what's going on over at the American Red Cross this month and, and some of the programs that you're working on. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, for me personally, September is my favorite month of the year, just because it is, of course, National Preparedness Month. Um, and the Red Cross, in an attempt to kind of address all phases of the disaster cycle, so preparedness, response, recovery, and sometimes mitigation, we have free disaster preparedness education for all ages. Um, and our programs still are growing. So as you mentioned, I have a kindergarten through second grade program called Prepare with Pedro, which follows this cute little penguin as he learns how to be prepared for and take action during emergencies. And those are based off of storybooks. So you can download all of our storybooks, but we also go into classrooms and teach kids and do activities with them. And my staff and volunteers dress up in costumes and we've got puppets and all that kind of fun stuff that keeps a four-year-old entertained. 
Um, and then we have our signature youth preparedness program, the Pillowcase Project, which is our third through fifth grade program. And that program was based off of events that occurred after Hurricane Katrina. So one of our staff in Louisiana actually saw students from Loyola University um, bring all of their supplies with them in pillowcases when they were coming to a Red Cross shelter after evacuating. Um, and that kind of spurred the idea that anything that you have in your home can be used as a tool to kind of gather your emergency supplies and bring them to safety. So what started as an art therapy program has now turned into our signature youth prep program. Um, and our programs keep growing. So beyond just the youth that we serve, we also have Be Red Cross Ready, which is our general adult preparedness program. We're really trying to kind of grow our program. So we start in kindergarten and go all the way to older adults. Um, and we offer hands-only CPR, Ready Raging, which is our business continuity program. And then we also have the Home Fire Campaign, which is where we install free smoke alarms in people's homes. And the idea being is that of course, we can go into homes and teach people how to be safe, but home fires are one of our most common disasters that we face in the U.S. And so being able to actually give people a tangible um, preparedness measure by installing a smoke alarm and providing them additional safety information is how we kind of really bring it full circle so that if we do meet them as the Red Cross on what is likely one of the worst days of their lives, they're familiar with us as a brand and know that we're there to help them. Well, that sounds great. I'm, I'm very curious, you know, because one of the things that we like to talk about here, especially on this podcast, is like, you know, sort of future challenges and issues and then how we can address those today. And and some of the things that, you know, that we see across the landscape, of, of course, you know, coming out of the pandemic now, for example, and, and other things in terms of, you know, outreach, especially this. I mean, this isn't just a U.S. issue. This is a worldwide issue in terms of youth preparedness programs. It's really everywhere. And so mm -hmm. I guess one of the things that is really that we need to emphasize and sort of really outline is just the importance of being able to reach out to youth and to be able to sort of enhance their preparedness. And one of the, the specialty areas that we look at is really in post-conflict and, and sort of crisis-affected areas and, and the role and, and even the impact of this crisis on, you know, youth and, and those certain populations and, and that are, you know, adversely affected more than others. And so what is really the, the importance of educating youth in all, age, in all ages, really, in terms of emergency and disaster preparedness? And, and how can, I guess, one of the questions I would have is how are you able to really sort of measure impact from all these? Mm -hmm. And so one of the statistics of like 1.4 million you know, children reached is, is fantastic. But how are you able to, you know, measure the impact of these programs? Um, and, and I guess part of that goes to what you were just talking about, how, you know, sort of responding and, and helping out others on the worst day of their life. So maybe we start with that sort of uh, conversation. Yeah, and I think it's kind of twofold, right? Because you have preparedness education on like a normal day, for example, like not hurricane season. And then you have preparedness education or perhaps resilience building post disaster. So when you're in kind of that long-term recovery phase and the two foundationally are the same, but they have to look very different just because on one end, you've got somebody that hasn't gone through a traumatic experience. And then on the other, you've got somebody that has just perhaps had to evacuate their home, have lost everything. How do you then re-engage them in that conversation so that when the next hurricane or wildfire comes, they have the capacity to actually be prepared and take action, right? 
So on the first end, say we're just, you know, living our normal lives and it's not hurricane season or wildfire season, even though wildfire season is all year round now, whatever it it might be. I think there is a tendency now because our youth face so many terribly horrible things to kind of shy away from what could be perceived as a scary conversation, right? Because we have so many things in our world that like can traumatize kids, like active shooters or wildfires, hurricanes, whatever it is, there is this desire to protect kids from that because they're exposed to so many other threats in their daily lives. But on that same edge, I always think about my mom because she was like, well, when you were growing up, I just figured I should never lie to you because you'll figure it out. So I might as well be the one to tell you what's really going on. And that's kind of the same approach too that we take because if we from a very young age, kindergarten is four or five years old, start introducing these topics and ensure that when we're talking about these things, we address that, yeah, like when we go into a classroom, we say, hey, today we're going to be talking about a wildfire and that can be really scary, but we're going to teach you all the things you can do so you're not as scared, you know what questions to ask, who you should go to for help, how to take deep breaths to help manage any feelings that you have, all those things so that as the information of preparedness gets more complex as they get older. It's kind of like creating those building blocks so that as they grow up, they've got this foundation so that, you know, when they are in a situation where they might have to evacuate with their family, they're like, oh, I remember learning in school that this little penguin just evacuated with his friends and he learned and it was fine. And those are kind of the steps that we like to take because if you don't do that, then that's when the panic and the fear and people make mistakes that they shouldn't or don't don't have the mental space to make the best decision to ensure that they're safe. So that's kind of a how we perceive, you know, why one, teaching kids at that age or any age is so important. And two, also understanding that youth have such an impact on the adults in their lives at any age, right? It's like if you have a little kid in your life, And they love dinosaurs and like you love dinosaurs too. And there's dinosaur birthdays and dinosaur toys and dinosaur pajamas, all that kind of stuff. And it's hopefully for us the same vein, right? It's we teach kids, we tell them how exciting it is to learn how to be safe. And hopefully they go home and tell the adults in their household, like, hey, mom and dad, I learned this in school. This is one of the things that we really encourage when we go into classrooms is go home and share everything that you learn because then you can have that conversation with your family or the members in your household about what what would evacuating for us look like? What can we do to put in our emergency kit? Like, where is a safe spot for me to meet? Or who do I call in an emergency? And so it's twofold in the sense that like providing kids with the information, but then also leveraging them because we know that they are and can be the most influential on the grownups in their lives. And that is like the foundation of how we kind of perceive preparedness education for youth. It looks a little different if it's post-disaster though, of course. There's a lot more um, trauma-informed care that goes into it, a lot more resilience skill building. And there's time too that we really consider as we try to reintroduce preparedness messaging for kids because we want our messaging to be positive and about staying safe and helping each other and helping your neighbors and not necessarily um, want to fear and re-traumatizing people. 
And then of course, impact wise, that was the question that you asked is how do we measure impact? It's a little bit harder with little kids because measuring and taking data about kids is always um, their safety is the most important thing. And so follow up data is a little bit interesting in that regard. Um, But what we do is the first thing that we do is just ensure correct knowledge and retention. So We do a post-test afterwards just to ensure that the kids actually remembered all of the correct protective actions. Like foundationally, we want to be sure that you know that you should like get low and go during a home fire so that you stay away from the toxic gas and the smoke and not like run around. So we're affirming that they did in fact learn the correct information. Um, And then as that secondary, we do a follow-up with the point of contact. So say we're in a school with a teacher, we send a follow-up email to that teacher being like, hey, it's been two weeks since we were in your classroom. Can you ask these kids these questions? Like, did you go home and tell a grown-up about what you learned? And, you know, all of those kind of like follow-up questions based off of what we taught them. And so it's not necessarily in an ideal world, we would be able to do like three-month surveys and six-month surveys, but it's what we're able to do now as we're still growing our programs. Yeah, that's interesting. I I think that's the correct approach in terms of trying to enable kids to be part of that process. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that they're actually integrated into sort of that, the, the family and the ability to be able to be prepared as a family in case any sort of a disaster occurs. And, and oh. what we've seen, and especially as we do a lot of sort of monitoring of what's happening in Ukraine and things like that, you know, we're seeing, of course, all the public education that's going around sort of landmines mm-hmm. and safety and, and sheltering and things like that. Um, and, and so that's also sort of integrating, as you mentioned, like there's overwhelming number of threats there, of course, and risks. And, and so that's part of the process of trying to mitigate a lot of that, just to inform the public and also through children to on, on what to do. But it's also uh, on your point in terms of having, having, you know, children being part of that process. I think it's interesting in terms of having them identify risks or threats or hazards or whatever you want to call it in terms of their own communities. And so how is that, you know, what is your approach in, in terms of that and, and being bringing children into that process to help them to, to help them to have a voice in that process to be a, an additional set of sort of perspective and the threats that we and the, the hazards that we face every day? Yeah. So one of the uh, tools that we have that is like always a fan favorite is our hazard map. And so it's this map of the United States and every state is a different color based off of the hazard that's most quote unquote, most likely to happen in the area. Um, And that's just to kind of engage kids in one, the thought process that like kids all over the world face different things. So kids in Washington state are likely to face earthquakes and wildfires and kids in Florida are likely to face hurricanes. And so having that visual where you can kind of see where you live, but see all the other different colors on the map kind of helps start that conversation of being like, all right, like this is where we live and this is the color that we are. Like, let's look at the key on the map and see, you know, where other states look like. And then you kind of get to have that conversation being like, does anybody have any family that lives out of state? Like, okay, what state do they live in? And that keeps the conversation going one so that they recognize like, okay, we're going to talk about the things that we're most likely to experience, but people all over the world experience different things. And part of that conversation too is, all right, if you go somewhere different, say you're in Washington and you end up in Florida, 
you can totally ask about hurricanes because people in Florida are going to know way more than people in Washington state about hurricanes. So it one prompts them to think about the hazards in their area based off their own historical knowledge. And then two, thinking about the other people in their lives or the people that they know about beyond just that one little location that they are in. So then they get thinking like, okay, there are more things beyond just what I experience. And how do I learn about the things that I'm likely to experience, but also to help hopefully engage them so they are curious to learn about the other things that are potential threats, whether they travel or whether they go somewhere new, or even just if a new threat arises where they are, um, they at least have the base knowledge to be curious about it. Are there any sort of uh, barriers to entry into launching these types of programs? Um, because when you were talking, I just was becoming curious about the idea of, you know, gaining access to communities, uh, gaining access to to children in, in schools or, or whatever mm-hmm. form, and then being able to, to convey this information or have events or, or in these types of programs. What are the sort of barriers to this delivering these programs do you face? Well, before the pandemic, we didn't have that many barriers, <laughs> but, but during the pandemic, we really did. Um, the nice thing about being the Red Cross is that we have a lot of different avenues for which we engage with the community. The Red Cross hosts blood drives. We do service to the armed forces with emergency messaging. We do work with international services. We've got training services, first aid, CPR, and then, of course, disaster response. So, A little bit of luck because not necessarily luck, but we kind of have the brand behind us, which is helpful because people associate like positive things when they think of the Red Cross. And so for us, when we go into a classroom too, and we're like, hey, teacher, we'll entertain your kids for an hour. Most of the times they're like, thank you. Absolutely. Come on in, which has been at least positive for us. And um, because we do so much with communities in so many other aspects that you know, say we have a Red Crosser who hosts a blood drive, then they're like, hey, we've got X, Y, and Z other programs. Would you be interested in? So a lot of it is just community building, one with our local emergency managers, our other nonprofit organizations, two being involved, just our Red Crossers are part of their own community. So that is usually helpful. A lot of times the classrooms we're going into has the kids of the Red Cross employees that we're working with. And then beyond is just growing, expanding, and doing community outreach. So being like, hey, like, we'd love to offer you this free service. We believe in supporting your community. We want to help you make, like, we want to help you stay safe. Um, And a lot of times, too, because we are doing so much in disaster response that there is this, like, desire to be like, okay, that was like a really hard thing that we either saw happen to another community or happened to us. Like, please come in and help provide this information to our kids. And that was like what we would call the normal times, right? Nothing is normal anymore because now that we're out of this pandemic, um, it was different during the pandemic in the sense too, that like we're normally in school classrooms or after school clubs or after school care. And then that was not, what was happening. Nobody was letting kids into school. Kids weren't even in school. They were doing virtual platforms. Some were doing live teaching like we're talking right now. Some were doing like canned curriculum. And so for us, it was really important that we have that face-to-face interaction. We don't like our preparedness education to be just static, just something that you read because we want kids to be able to interact with the real Red Crosser so that they do build that trust, but then also we can answer all of their questions like in a real and live way. Um, And so the pandemic was really hard for us because 
we shifted to virtual offering and we learned, it took us a long time to figure out how to do that, to engage kids virtually because, you know, you can, when you're teaching in a classroom, you can walk around, you can look kids in the eye, you can like get on their level, you can like smile at them. And in the virtual space, a lot of times they didn't have their cameras on and you didn't actually know if they were doing the protective actions. And so we finally got to a space probably like a year into the pandemic where we felt good about what we were able to do in the virtual classroom setting. And then we kind of did the hybrid where it was like, we were virtual, but the kids were together in the classroom because they weren't letting people into the school. And so um, just learning to think on our feet too and engage kids in a new way that we weren't used to made it a lot more challenging. And because the digital digital divide was a huge sore point for us because a lot of the kids that we normally serve don't have Google Chrome laptops or, you know, like they just don't have access or they do have access, but it's only when their parents are home because they're doing their schoolwork on their parents' smartphone. So that was, you know, I think for us, the biggest hurdle that we had to face and still something that we're working through because the populations that we know really need our education the most aren't necessarily the ones that are in a metropolitan city that have the same access to technology that, you know, other school districts have. So um, those are all big learning curves and we tried to get creative with it. Um, It was a little bit more traveling, a little bit more work on the outreach end than we were used to. But I think as people kind of fell into a routine once we were in that pandemic space, then it was a little bit easier for us to do outreach in a way that we were used to. Well, let's let's talk about that for just a little bit in terms of the uniqueness of our communities and like who we're delivering these programs to, because, you know, if I'm sitting in a community and I wanted to launch one of these programs, what are some of the things I should be considering? So you mentioned obviously the difference in schools and then also there's, there's different cultures and different communities, you know? And so what are some of the things that we should be focused on when we want to launch some of these programs in our community? Obviously the Red Cross is a, is a great asset and resource to be able to work with, Um, But what should we be thinking about in terms of making sure these programs are a success? Totally. I think for us and the way we've been most successful is that a lot of times before we even go into community or we're in the very beginning, early stages of creating a partnership or a connection is that we always like show them our curriculum first. We're like, hey, this is what we're teaching our kids based off of your community, based off of your needs. What do we need to modify to best fit your community, your environment, your culture, whatever it is. Um, And that I think for us, so much of our programs are modifiable because of that reason, right? And it was even to the very core of like the hazard that we teach is the thing foundationally that we're like, okay, like we know that not everybody needs to learn about earthquakes. So like, what else would they learn about? And that foundationally, that flexibility, I think is crucial, right? You're obviously keeping the core information on why it's important to stay safe and the protective actions the same, but having that conversation with the community, one proves that you're genuinely invested in ensuring that they're safe in the best way that they can be for their community because it always looks different. And two, you're like, all right, I am the Red Cross. I want to support you in the best way that I can. What is that going to look like for you? Um, And that for us, especially in our youth programs, but all of our preparedness programs is something that we keep at the forefront because the last thing, and I think too, for us, a lot of it is 
like relationship building because we want to time and time and again like prove that we are in fact an organization that believes in supporting the community and being there for the community when they need us and so that for us is a very easy thing for us to do without it being like a lot of work on the front end on the international level the pillowcase project is also done by the Mexican Red Cross and the Australian Red Cross and the British Red Cross. And each of those programs are different. The foundation is is the same, and it's still called the Pillowcase Project, but they've been able to adapt them to their international Red Cross and their community so that, you know, the core of being able to teach youth how to be prepared is still there, but they've been able to adapt it to best fit what they're able to do as, you know, their local Red Cross organization and to what's going to best fit their community. So whether that's language or the style of presentation, it's all modifiable. The core, of course, being just trying to teach kids how to stay safe. Yeah, I was going to ask that question, too, of like, how exactly were those programs going to be different? But uh, I guess that's very true, right? So just the semantics, the, the the language, the local sort of dialects that go along with all of that, and sort of, of course, the risks and hazards that, uh, that they're dealing with. And so you mentioned, coming back to this point on the pandemic, you mentioned sort of how you had to rethink the way you deliver programs, and it took about a year to be, mm-hmm. let's just say, more effective in delivering those programs. What is the future with that now? Are you going to try and stay with hybrid programs or are you going to try and move that back to, you know, in-person programs where you, one could argue, argue you're more effective mm-hmm. in, with in-person programs? Yeah, I would say we're just going to do it all and see, <laughs> see mm. what works best for us. I think for me, one, proving that we were able to appropriately provide kids accurate emergency preparedness information was like the the foundation for me. That was the most important. And now that we've proven that we can do that in various mediums, we'll definitely be able to keep both virtual in-person and this weird kind of in-person half virtual hybrid available um, for all of our programming. Um, And we do that too, because we have 50 Red Cross regions and some of my regions are just a city like Los Angeles. And some of my regions are North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota, right? So I have one person in a region that is responsible for preparedness programs, and that might be a city, and that might be three states. And so having this hybrid version of virtual or hybrid hybrid in-person, all those kind of variations gives us a little bit more leverage and capacity to reach more people in a way that we hadn't really been able to before. We had some regions before the pandemic do virtual, and they were kind of like our pilot, and then we really had to like full force go all virtual. So it gave us a wider group of people to give us better best practices. When it's just one person doing virtual, you're like, "Ah, okay, like do the best you can. But when it's everybody, you then have to be like, all right, let's really kind of work throughout some of these kinks. Um, And so we'll always allow it just because we do, our reach is so big, both on the continental US and of course on military bases abroad. So having that flexibility just gives us more opportunity to reach more people and different communities in ways that we hadn't been able to in the past. I think that one of the things that has been good throughout that whole sort of pandemic and you know, event that we lived through was the fact that it, it forced us to rethink about the way that we deliver these programs. And so I think mm-hmm. keeping some sort of hybrid approach plus, you know, as you mentioned, geographic restrictions obviously, you know, mean that you deliver programs differently. Um, but I also think that there's going to be a 
technology shift also in the way that we deliver these mm-hmm. programs. What are, what are you thinking in terms of, you know, at least maybe even just you personally versus the Red Cross or, or whatever the case is, or maybe they're both the same, but in terms of, you know, adapting in the use of technology to be able to reach sort of the, the youth and the, the next generation, because obviously they're growing up in a very different time, you know, than, than what I did. And yeah. so they're heavily with technologies or used to everything. They're, they're probably going to go, if they're not already into to AR and VR and everything else like that, is there, is there any way to incorporate <laughs> yeah. technology and, and to have it be, um, you know, more appealing to the youth? Yeah, I mean, I think it's on all levels, too. One, just offering our programs virtually. A lot of my, like, the first thing that we encountered was, like, a knowledge gap in technology use and then having to use different platforms because WebEx looks different than Google and looks different than MS Teams and this platform. And so, one, it was just, like, catching up to be able to even use the technology. What I will say, too, on that regard is that we were able to engage our older youth that we have programming for, that's not necessarily, we have like some adapted like middle school and high school programs and we're kind of building out our other programs. But, you know, if you think of middle school and high school or kids love learning from other kids. So ideally if we had high schoolers teaching my kindergarten through fifth grade programs, like that would be even better because peer to peer learning is like the best. Right. And so, but that was what we were able to do during the pandemic was because kids were in this virtual learning space, we were able to engage that older set of youth to be able to then virtually give presentations to the younger kids in a way that they hadn't been able to before because they were in school. But now that they had this more virtual flexible schedule, we were able to offer them a different way to be involved with preparedness education that they hadn't been able to be in the past. And I think that's the same for even just like, as we think about kind of like high school and college age kids and how they engage in the emergency and disaster preparedness space, offering virtual education, but also virtual learning and teaching opportunities for them is the way that we open up the world. I know that so much, so many of our older Red Cross youth are able to virtually connect with other Red Cross youth in different societies across the globe because of the virtual space. So they've been able to set up platforms where they can connect with each other. One, because connection was a big, or lack thereof, of connection was huge um, during the pandemic. That was ever, but that's what everybody was desperate for, being able to connect with each other. And then secondary was, okay, so we have all these programs that we love, but we can't do them in person. How do we do them virtually? And what they were able to do is connect with each other, share best practices, learn from each other, learn about the different programmings that were going on in the world, and then collaborate on new initiatives together. So I think that it's not necessarily, it's, I think for me personally, it's all just about encouraging youth to connect with each other because a lot of times we're like, ah, oh, like you're too young. You don't know anything yet. You don't know about the world. But one, I think youth nowadays know so much more about emergency management just foundationally than even I had access to. I had no idea that this was a career when I was growing up. And now we've got all these youth that are like actively engaged in their communities because, you know, they experienced the hazard or they heard about it from a friend, from a Red Cross club or another initiative, and now are being able to be engaged because there is that appetite for being more involved in your community. Whether you've been impacted directly or know somebody that has or just are looking for something to do to put on your resume, whatever it is, um, I think that leveraging technology 
especially during the pandemic, was really helpful for helping kids make those connections, but then also gave them the opportunity to learn so much more just even about our field beyond all the other things that they were exposed to. Well, that's interesting that you were able to blend the peer-to-peer learning, which is valuable, right, and mm-hmm. and more successful into that hybrid environment. So you, you were saying that because of the pandemic period and the fact that everybody had these flexible you know, school schedules and stuff like that, you were able to bring in teenagers and, and young mm-hmm. adults who are then more appealing as instructors to, to the kids. Yeah. It's always so more fun, it? too, when it's like <laughs> an older, cool kid that you're learning from. <laughs> yeah, true, true. And, and so is that something that's going to be a model that you continue to sustain um, as long as you're able to? So that was far more successful than just having, you know, some somebody else just come in that's a normal instructor. Yeah, I think we hope to. It's all about capacity, right? So we have so many things. I, I, It's the internal Red Cross competition for youth, right? It's like, okay, we can have our youth host a blood drive, or they can help respond to disasters, or they can, you know, write letters to whatever it might be. We're kind of always uh, chomping at the bit to get people engaged. That was one that I think um, kids really love just because they got to interact with other kids. But we're always looking for ways, and we do have very robust Red Cross clubs, um, and we're leaning more now now into getting them involved on the preparedness education end. I think for us, and I, I know this too, and this is where, where kind of, kind of we're growing in my programming is right now I only have kindergarten through fifth grade. And so I do have that like middle school and high school gap. And so working with organizations like the Global Disaster Preparedness Center and other Red Cross, Red Crescent societies to kind of build um, a curriculum or kind of grab and go, you know, activities for kids to do is a project that we're working on right now so that um, one day the goal is to, of course, have something for, you know, kindergarten all the way to 110 so that you have something for everybody of all ages. Um, and as we've been layering the foundation for, you know, our younger kids, we're starting to grow and expand to provide opportunities for that older age group. And that, of course, is being one, both to be taught yourself so that you receive education, but then also providing you with the opportunity to be the one that then goes and teaches if that's what you like. Because I think that that um, a lot of kids these days are looking for ways to get involved um, for whatever reason it is. And so we're hoping to ensure that we have something for them to do if that's what they choose. So what does the future hold in? We know when we're looking at these types of programs and you're you're sort of projecting out you know, five years, 10 years, what is, I guess, what are you thinking? Like what's next in terms of what's my dream? Better? Yeah. Yeah. What, what would yeah. the ideal look like for you? Yeah. I think for us, I'm always just looking to grow because even the hazards that I thought we were going to be teaching forever were like, always adding in new hazards. Like I just built out an extreme heat curriculum and we had kind of touched on extreme heat, but now we're like, oh, extreme heat is a serious issue. And it'll be the same for winter storms. Winter storms are going to get so, more, so much more extreme. So I think for me, growth is always like on the forefront of my mind and being on top of the things that are like really relevant to kids in our communities. And that's hard because I've a whole country and many other, <laughs> many other areas to stay on top of. But I think for us, one staying on top of the hazards that we teach, but also how we engage kids. So 
We have a whole um, kind of library now of animated videos that we're working on too, because we find that like, we still really find value in that in-person interaction and being able to interact with kids and talk to them one-on-one, but we can't, we're just one organization. We can't be there for kids all the time. So creating really valuable static resources for kids that are still kind of on that same caliber. So, you know, a parent could just like click play and their kids can learn about earthquakes and wildfires is one way that I think for us just on a sustainability level is important. So as we're thinking forward, we're also thinking what's going to last us five to 10 years down the road because everything's changing so fast and things get outdated so quickly. So the things that are going to be a good investment for us are the things that are going to stick around for a couple years animated videos and adjusting the way that we are just trying different mediums really is kind of what we're kind of looking for. So whether that be the animated videos, I also have, um, you know, Alexa, Amazon Alexa or the Google Home Assistant. We have a game where you can be like, hey, Alexa, play Pedro's Fire Challenge. And Alexa can walk through a game with a kid and teach them fire safety. So kind of just being curious about other avenues that kids are learning through whether it be like an online learning platform, maybe that'll be the next thing that we do. But just being curious about um, what is and how kids are being engaged this year. Maybe one day it's social media. I don't with, because my kids are a little bit younger. I'm not there yet, but I'm sure one day they will be. So just trying to um, think and project about how we can stay sustainable, but also in line with the technology that as it changes, um, so we're all, so will our audience and how they learn changes. Um, so those are my two things, staying on top of hazards and then also uh, staying on top of how technology evolves as well. And when you were talking about, you know, extreme heat and, and know those other sort of conditions, it made me think about how some cities are dealing with heat islands you know, and, mm-hmm. and looking at other sort of resilience models. And I think it was today I was reading an article about the city of Austin creating resilience hubs in the city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so how much of the work that you're doing are these types of programs are actually going and speaking with the the cities and the administrations and the leadership and, and preparedness departments for these really specific sort of issues like heat islands, you know, that not every city has it, not every town has it, but it can be very specific with some, you know, heavy urban areas. So how much of of the work that you're doing is is tightly integrated into that local community like that so that you're able to tailor the content and material accordingly? Mm -hmm. I think that's where we're evolving to as well. So all of my local Red Cross regions have and own all of those relationships with their local emergency management offices, their local city, their local county, whatever it is. Um, So that one, because they are the community members themselves and two, they have those relationships. A lot of times they will make connections with school because they are directly involved with the school administration and the superintendent of their area. Um, And so a lot of times the connections to get into school start at that level and then it digs down a little bit deeper so that they can stay on top of what is the most relevant to that area. Um, and I will say that Red Cross as an organization, we're really evolving into like being more thoughtful. Um, we've always been thoughtful, but like really drilling down into how climate change is impacting our communities and identifying communities that are like the most high risk that we're see that we go to every single year for whether a wildfire or a hurricane and kind of 
identifying like, all right, like this is a community that we know, knows who we are. We're often supporting them in, you know, the recovery phase. How do we then step beyond that and advocate for them on a larger level in the sense that like, okay, like what are the other needs that would make your recovery better in the future? And how can we support the other local nonprofit organizations that need your support during response that don't necessarily do the things that we do? you know, in, during a disaster um, and kind of expanding how we, you know, interact with our community in one way because we do offer our programs, but then how do we support the community as a whole with their other programming, with their other local government officials, um, with the things that they're likely or projected to face in the future because we can see a lot of too with modeling that like we know which areas are going to be the most impacted by sea level rise or because of heat change. Um, so really identifying those and being on the forefront, I think, as an org- organization is what we're moving towards, which makes me excited because obviously as somebody in preparedness, I'm like, all right, like this is where we should be going. It's moving. Like, we know climate change is real. We know this is our programs address this, whether we're saying it directly, which we will eventually one day. Um, just because I'm changing my curriculum as we speak, because that is something that's very relevant. Um, But also stay on top of just engaging and staying on the forefront with those relationships, because at the very core, we're not the Red Cross if we don't have good, strong partnerships with our fellow community members. So, Yeah, I think that's really a great idea. I think that the ability to really, you know, as, as you mentioned, sort of drill down into those community topics and really tailor the content materials in that way, and, and getting into that sort of almost content production piece and being able to, to hyper-localize some mm-hmm. of those, the information coming out is, is going to be super helpful. I think in the long term as the, and the, the environment, not just in terms of the, the global environment and the climate yeah. issue, but I think the overall security environment continues to evolve and change to, to various different situations. But I think that's extremely helpful and extremely interesting. Uh, so where can we find out more information about your programs and where can we find you if somebody has any questions or wants to reach out to you? Yeah, awesome. So uh, redcross.org slash youth prep links to both uh, the Pillowcase Project and Prepare with Pedro and our animated videos and our uh, voice activated skill and all the other fun games and free resources that we have available. All of it's externally facing. So uh, you can download it and just enjoy it in the comforts of your own home. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. And I think I gave you, <laughs> I gave you those. I don't, I think it's always Sam K. Johnson is usually the easiest go-to if you need to find me. Great. Well, I really appreciate you being here, Sam. It was great information and perspective and very insightful. And anybody who wants to prepare, well, you should already be preparing because it's basically <laughs> September and almost October, but yeah. you should already be preparing. And if you haven't started, reach out to Sam, get started, go to the American Red Cross, get some content materials and start helping your communities. So thanks a lot, Sam. It was great seeing you and appreciate you being here. Awesome. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you in partnership between Capacity Building International and the International Emergency Management Society. You can join teams today at tiems.info, that's tiems.info, and also sign up for the International Emergency Management Newsletter by CBI at capacitybuildingint.com. Is there a topic you would like to hear about? Or are you a functional expert and want to be featured on our show? If so, reach out to us at info at capacitybuildingint.com and let us know. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.